Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Prairie Design Lab from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Today in the lab, we have a rock-hard story that is 450 million years old. I call this episode Tyndall, named for the stone from Gillis Quarries, 45 minutes northeast of Winnipeg in Garson, Manitoba. This limestone quarry is owned and operated by the fourth generation of the Gillis family. If you look around in almost any prairie city and in many other places across the country, even around the world, you'll find Tyndall stone buildings. To get the full Tyndall story, I'm joined now by Jeffrey Dolovich, who's the Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Gillis Quarries. Jeffrey's a University of Manitoba graduate with degrees in engineering and environmental studies. Well, hello, Jeffrey Dolovich. Hey, Terry. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. I just want to know absolutely everything about Gillis Quarries. How old, first of all, Jeffrey, is that quarry? The stone was discovered in 1894, the Garson location. It was a farmer by the name of John Gunn, and he was uh, had an operation in Stonewall, and he was trying to expand his operation. He moved to Garson, Manitoba. He tried to dig a well to get some water, and he hit a rock. And his family had some roots, I believe, in Scotland, in the stone uh, manufacturing business. They kept on searching and searching the area, and they found uh, an 1,800-acre deposit. Tindlestone, and uh, that's kind of when it all started in 1894. And then it was like a gold rush. There was four or five quarries that popped up, Garson, Limestone, Lyle, etc., that, that started to harvest the stone. But we started quarrying in 1910. That was August Gillis that uh, that started for Gillis quarries. Uh, William Garson was the one who started Garson Limestone, which was the largest quarry at the time. But it was August Gillis, my boss's great grandfather, that started Gillis quarries in 1910. And who began to use the Tyndall stone from your quarry? I believe some of the first examples were the parliament buildings in Ottawa and the legislature in Manitoba. I mean, those buildings, uh, I think, were designed in 1908. So there was a spattering of use between its discovery and those signature buildings in the early 1900s. Once it was used on those signature buildings, they realized that, hey, you know what? The only source of this stone is in Canada. That's why we're using it on this signature building. And there's some immediate pride associated with the use of the stone in that it was the only place in the world you could get it. So what happened was more signature buildings across the country used it. And then it led to institutional buildings, uh, hospital schools, et cetera. That trickled down to private residences where people all wanted to tell the story. Uh, The same reason why people started to use it back in the early 1900s is the same reason why we still exist today, old-fashioned Manitoban Canadian pride. What makes it a good stone for building? It's first of all got an amazing aesthetic. It's got that tapestry, that mottling that you see. That's a result of something that happened 450 million years in history, which is hard to get your head around. But when we were all one big supercontinent, Pangea, and Manitoba was maybe somewhere south of the equator near Ecuador, uh, 6,000 miles away. Uh, at the bottom of a warm, shallow seabed, there was all this ancient marine life that was burrowing in the uh, calcium sediment. And they were trying to get food and escape predators. And, and this ancient marine life were burrowing and making tunnels in the sediment. So all the calcium hardened first. It was a first activity. And then it wasn't until millions of years later 
that magnesium in dolomite-rich water percolated through those burrows that the marine life made. So there are two distinct uh, activities giving you two distinct chemistries in the stone. So what you're seeing really in those burrows or those uh, models that you see are the trace fossils. They're the remains from the marine life. And so what's spectacular is that that's what created the tapestry. And if you want to get that in any other stone, you're looking at granites, marbles, travertines in limestone. Usually it's very monochromatic, very consistent, such as Croatian stone, Texas stone, Indiana limestone, Alabama stone. They're all very consistent in color. In fact, there was an architect in New York that we worked with, Malcolm Holtzman, and he loved our stone when he came to Canada because he said it was the first time he had ever seen deformed stone. My boss took a little offense to that at the time. I loved it because it was his way of saying just how unique and how distinct that was a look for natural limestone versus other stones. So you can get uh, certain limestones anywhere you travel, but to get that natural stone that has that distinct aesthetic, you have to come to Canada. So I think the first thing that people look for is something that's from our earth, something that's from our own terrain, and also something that's very distinct. And our stone is about as distinct as it gets. So I think that's the reason for the longevity is that it has that type of distinction, that type of brand. It's a medium density limestone, which means it has all the properties suitable for a cladding or for a flooring, but it's also easy to cut. Processing the stone is quite a labor of love as well. So it has all the properties in terms of durability, uh, moisture management, et cetera, while having that beautiful aesthetic So and being distinct. So I think that's what architects look for, is, is they're looking for something that philosophically makes sense. If we were there now and beginning to explore, what would we be seeing? We would uh, be taken by a mountain of raw blocks that are all about six foot by eight foot by three foot in size. And you would see codes on these blocks. They would be uh, designating where it came from, whether it was the west, east, north, or south of the quarry, what number of block was extracted, what level. Our quarry is basically a sedimentary rock. And so we have about 10 to 15 beds of 18 inches to 24 inches that step down into the ground. So you have the overburden, the trees, et cetera, eight feet of that. Then you have a series of bed layers and that's what you'd see. And they step down and you'd have the buff layers on the top. You'd have uh, the gray layers on the bottom and all the transitional buffering and mix of gray layers in the middle. So you'd see literally this huge cake and you'd see two or three eight foot diameter blades. You'd see a 10 foot long chainsaw. These would be making these hundred foot long cuts in the rock, maybe six feet apart. And then you'd see actually uh, lines or cuts 90 degrees perpendicular to those. So basically it would look like cake in a pan. Big forklifts would come in, they would come underneath the blocks, they lift them up. Sometimes it comes up nice and clean, sometimes it doesn't. We drill these holes into the, to the sockets that are made by the saw blades. We drill these holes and then we pound spikes into them to induce stress concentration so the blocks come out cleaner. It's an old fashioned way of extracting the blocks, but it's the same way we've been doing it for a hundred years. Some people blast them, we use eight foot diameter saw blades. Did you say that there are different colors of Tyndall stone in your quarry? So yeah, depending on the depth, it's all off-white, it's all dolomitic. So it's, it's a very light color that you see uh, when you travel around Manitoba, but there are different shades. You have a premier buff color that was used quite commonly back in the day. That's the top layers. And then you have a cooler gray color 
that's in the bottom layers, then the transitional and the milieu. So they're similar, but uh, there's enough of a difference that depending on the complementary materials we're using, the architects will have one way or the other. How deep is your quarry? How far down does the stone go? It's an average of one and a half, two feet, and you got about 10, 12 layers. You're probably looking at 20, 25 feet down below the, the surface, maybe 30 feet down. So it's just below the soil that was there. That's right. Yeah. If you go too far down, then you get too many perfections. It's just all of a sudden the integrity of the stone is compromised. And we actually discovered that the hard way where we supplied a few jobs. It was from a deeper level. And there was something known as chert, which is a little bit of a, an intrusion of a, a pocket of mud. And it just is, is a weaker part of the stone. And so we found there was too much of that chert below that 10th or 11th or 12th layer to, that was suitable for construction because it would jeopardize the integrity of the stone. You said you opened your quarry in 1910. And so what's the life of the quarry? How much is left in it? Depending on the consistency and depending on how fast our people uh, sell the stone, there's about, I would say, oh, 1,400, 1,500 acres that Gillis Quarries owns. There's probably about 1,600 acres that we have the rights to. And we've quarried to date in the last 110 years, probably about 300 acres. So there's probably, what's that, 1,300 left. At our current pace, uh, my great-great-grandchildren probably won't have to worry about it. So we're okay. But again, like, I mean, who knows what you're going to find, right? It's a natural resource. I mean, we've been lucky that in the last 110 years, our resource has been very consistent. If all of a sudden we end up in an area where things change, you know, things could change dramatically. But if you extrapolate from where we are right now, we could be uh, good for another uh, three, 400 years, 500 years. What kind of interest do you have from architects and engineers in the Tyndall Stone? It depends on where you go. Philosophically, people love to work with natural stones from their birth. 90% of our business is in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. We do a little bit in BC. We do a little bit in Ontario and a little bit in Quebec. Then there's a spattering overseas, usually transplanted Manitobans. Someone who's left and wants to taste the home, either for their hearth or their fireplace or a house they're building. So we've done, you know, for example, Canadian Embassy in Berlin, because it was a Canadian Embassy, it used Tyndall Stone. We've done a house in Japan. We've done a couple of houses in Australia. We've done the Virgin Islands. Obviously, the demand for stone is the greatest in Manitoba because it's in our backyard. And that's where the pride and the emotional attachment is the greatest. In Saskatchewan, you can almost dissolve the border between Manitoba and Saskatchewan. They have as much love for it there as we do here. And Alberta, they've used it quite prolifically depending on the year. I know back in the late 90s, early 2000s, times being good with oil, there was a lot of tinstone used in Alberta. Things have slowed down the last three or four years, just being more to do with the economy than their love for tinstone. You told me earlier that you offer tours. Who comes on your tour? You know, I'd love to say it's completely open. And one day when I retire, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a tour guide like they have in Chicago for the architectural tour. Although ours won't be in a boat, I'll probably be driving a golf cart. Right now, though, until that happens, it's professional, design professional. So every couple of weeks in the summer, to, we send out a massive e-blast to architects, interior designers, home builders, general contractors, engineers, uh, developers, anyone who's a professional in the design construct industry. 
and we'll put through probably 20 to 30 people per tour. We started this a few years ago. We've gotten through probably three, 400 design professionals to date. You know, I've had some architects, uh, Terry, that I've been working with for the last 35 years come up to me and say, Jeffrey, you know, we did what you asked us to do because, you know, you're the one with the expertise, but we really didn't understand the context until we came on one of these tours. And now we really get, why do you use random links? Why do you have to use colors in this application? Why do you have to detail a certain way? Why can you only get a size of stone this big for this particular application? Telling them is one thing. Being at the quarry and really physically seeing what our limitations are and what we're able to do, that makes all the difference to the architects because then they do things with such confidence and assurance. The tours are amazing to give you a piece of Manitoba history. You come in the summertime, you see that unbelievable emerald colored water from the calcium. If you've ever been to Golden, B.C., uh, to Emerald Lake. It's the same reason for their bluish green water. It's the calcium in the water. You see that stunning color. You see this vast resource, which is just, you know, so awesome. It's so, it's like going to see the Grand Canyon. You're so overwhelmed by the magnitude, you know, of the quarry. So there's so many senses playing, you know, there's beauty, there's history, there's knowledge. We're going to change your life. And it sounds a little bit melodramatic, and I'm having a little bit of fun with them. You know, out of all the things you can see in Manitoba, it's right up there with the, you know, the art gallery and the legislature and going to the symphony. And it's up there with having a genie's cake. It's intrinsically Manitoban. What do the architects want to know when they're on these tours? What are they asking about? They're wondering, first of all, how come there's so many blocks out there that aren't being used? That's the first thing that's, that appeals that, wow, because you see literally thousands of blocks. One thing we educate them on is the limitation. They know it's a natural stone. They know we can cut anything to specific dimensions. So what do we need to know? We need to know that our particular resource has something known as very specific seams or dries. We actually call them dries. They're almost like faults, you know, like the fault of an earthquake. They're faults that run through our stone and we have to know how to identify the location of those and cut around them. And that's what will indicate how big a stone you can get. For example, you look at the panels that are on the Manitoba Museum or the panels that are on the concert hall or on the art gallery. Well, they can't get any size they want because if you go too large, you run into those natural seams and dries that we have to cut around. And then that renders the stone useless, you know, because of its lack of durability. When we give you a stone, we need to know that it has 100% integrity. They need to know that that's naturally occurring. We show them that. We literally take them up to the wall on a quarry bed and show them a natural dry so they get a visual of what this looks like and why we mandate certain things. A lot of manufactured products, they will have a distinct size. They will have, let's say, a concrete blocks, eight inches by 16 inches. We will actually encourage them to go random lengths, maybe 85% two foot long, and then you have some one and a half, some three foot wide because it places waste at our discretion. And that's something that we want architects to know that if they let us be in charge of the waste and have some randomness in what we provide, then we can bring the price down 30, 40, 50% as opposed to if they say you must be 24 inches every single time, if we run into some type of defect at 21 inches, well, that's waste and there's nothing we can do with it. So to minimize the waste, we also show them how we do selection, how we look at raw material, and we will look at seven, 10 jobs at a time and say, hey, 
what can we get out of that block? We need so many 25 slabs, so many 57, so many 90, so one, so many 123s. Now we look at a raw block and we say, okay, we have all these draws we have to do. In that one block, we can get so many 57, so many 90, so many 123s. If we looked at one block for one job, the cost would be prohibitive. We have to maximize the utilization of every raw block. So we have to look at one block as it relates to many jobs. So we have this cut list of slabs we need for a variety of projects. We look at what, how many slabs can we get out of that block. So you'll see red marks on our blocks all the time designating what's unusable. So that type of process is very important to architects because then they understand there's a selection that goes into that we're doing our due diligence to make sure that they get the finest product there is. And also it's a time thing. They need to know that this is not a widget. This is not like, you know, a concrete block where you vibrate it for eight seconds and you have three concrete blocks. This is a saw blade moving through the stone for seven minutes. We like them to see that. We like them to physically stand there and stare at that blade going through the block so they get a feel that, hey, this takes not a week to do. This particular job may take two months to do, and it takes a couple of months to do shop drawings and reviews. So if we're going to tender a job and we want the stone ready by the time the school opens up, we better than work backwards and make sure our drawings are ready by this date. So it's a real eye-opener in terms of process on what they have to do as a design firm in terms of getting drawings ready by a certain date, knowing the end game that kids have to be in that school by a certain uh, completion date. So there's a reason why we're the only ones who do the cradle to grave with Tindlestone. Indiana Limestone will send their raw product out to dozens and dozens and dozens of fabricators all over North America. That's because it's seamless. You can cut it, slice and dice it any way you want, and you're fine. With Tindlestone, with those natural seams and dries you have to cut around, and that it takes multi-generational experience, we have to then make sure that we are the ones that do it all. We do not farm out our processing to any other processors. An architect knows that if they get our product, we've quarried it and we've fabricated it. What's the maximum size that you can produce in terms of slabs of Tyndall stone? I mean, we don't like to go beyond 990 in both directions because of the limitations of our machinery. So, you know, you know that's kind of three foot plus. We don't want to exceed that in both directions. But in terms of maximum panel size, you could probably go... 900. We recommend no more than 800, but uh, we can do up to 900. And as far as length, we probably cap it off at about 1600 long. So that's kind of like in the five, five and a half foot range. If you go random lanes and let the waste be at our discretion, well, Manitoba Hydro has panels up to seven feet, which are like 2100 long. Even the art gallery has some panels up to, to seven feet. Two and a half to five is ideal, but we can do, if we needed to, anywhere up to three by seven. It's important to know because there's some manufacturers because of being seamless, we'll be able to give you a four foot by eight foot panel. And, you know, when they ask for that, we have to be very careful that we manage their expectations and discuss, you know, that it is a limitation of, of you know, two to three by, by five to seven and the reasons why. When you look around the city, which buildings do you point to that are Tyndall Stone? I have a list of 200 buildings that are my favorites. And of course, we never have time to take them to all of them. We leave the Manitoba legislature for the very end. Because if you've been there to see the, the regular tour, that's nice. If you go there to see Dr. Frank Galbo's Hermetic Tour, much better. Oh, I have. I've, yeah. I've been on it four 
times Frank and I collaborated on a couple of things, actually. I'm a professional musician, so I provided the soundtrack for some of his presentations. But if you haven't gone in for the purpose of looking at the Tyndall Stone, that's something every Manitoban has to do because it is absolutely breathtaking. Some of the, the Gothic architecture in there, and the, I mean, we couldn't do it today. In today's dollars, we're talking, you know, uh, you know, pick a figure, a billion, two billion dollars of stone. The Hall of Honor in Ottawa, we're talking billions. So we're talking about one column with those unbelievable uh, Gothic detailing could be a quarter of a million dollars, just one column. I often try to imagine two, three hundred European stone cutters on the lawn of uh, the legislature in Ottawa just chipping away. Say Manitoba's legislature is absolutely spectacular. The art gallery is such an iconic building. And yeah, you, know, you have to walk inside, upstairs, you know, walk around the exterior. Gusta Rosa's iconic building is, is definitely one you got to see. The Museum of Human Rights, of course, most recently, we worked five years on the business development on that. And it was really quite an amazing exercise because there's not a straight wall on that building. Everything is battered, you know, two degrees, five degrees, seven degrees. So what kind of a challenge did that present for you? For us, it was more in our drafting department because uh, there was so much customization of that job because, you know, just the standard material, everyone thinks they're looking at, you know, for example, an eight inch unit, a 190 unit, they're all 190, but they're not. They're 191s, 193s, 187s, 184s, and all have to be modeled on our computer because when the walls are a batter, it has to look like they're all 190 millimeters. So as you move along that angle, it changes. And so there's a lot of modeling issues we had to do. Stuff that wasn't really in our uh, field of expertise, but that had to be considered is all the anchoring of our huge Tindlestone soffits, our Tindlestone capstones, a lot of the detailing with the stairs and threads, et cetera. The engineer and architect of record um, had to spend, you know, literally years on coming up with all the detailing for this project. My involvement was almost five years. The real genius of the Tindall on that job is uh, our drafting manager, Graham Bergeron. Graham's been around for 23 years and he's the one who detailed that personally for GA Masonry. Why is it called Tindall Stone? It's too bad that this is being broadcast because now I'm gonna to have to change my question on the tour bus because at the very end, I asked a skill testing question. And whoever gets it right gets a ukulele because I'm being a musician, the red ukulele has become a branding tool of ours all over North America. Architects get flown ukuleles at Christmas time. And I will not go into the story of why it's a brand because it takes five minutes to tell, but you come on my tour bus, I'll let you know. But why is it called Tindlestone? People have been guessing at that for years. Our stone is quarried in Garson, Manitoba. There is a town, Tyndall, Manitoba, that's a couple of miles uh, east of it. And at the time, that was the closest railway spur to ship product. And in those days, there was a lot of product that was shipped by rail. I'm surprised there's not more now because of lead, but uh, because you can get more lead points uh, by rail. But anyways, all the bills of lading, all the documentation when we ship product abroad would say Tindall Manitoba on it. So for example, the Museum of Civilization in Gatineau or Hull, Quebec, that was about 16,000 tons, I believe, that was shipped by rail over three years. So there was a lot of bills of lading. So people would see that and they say, hey, you know what? I really like that stone. That, uh, that Tyndall Stone, because they, they just see Tyndall, Manitoba. Well, at the time, I mean, we called it Tyndall Stone, but we couldn't register it because we weren't a monopoly. We weren't the sole proprietor of Tyndall Stone until approximately the mid-70s. So that was a long time. It was called Tyndall Stone without anyone registering it. But as soon as we bought out the last competition, we literally raced like Speedy Gonzalez to the registrar's office. We made sure that became ours. So now there's a registered trademark. But it was as simple as it being the town 
from which the material was railed all those years. I remember years ago when I was building a fireplace surround, a mantle for a gas fireplace that we had got installed and I designed it myself. And I thought it has to have Tyndall stone. And I remember going down to your office on Wenzel and ordering it. I asked, can I get lots of fossils? And you said to me, well, it'll be $25 more, Terry, for lots of fossils. Uh, because the, the stone was really pretty affordable, but $25 more. And I thought, well, 450 million years, $25 sounds like a pretty good deal to me. In yeah. Winnipeg, everyone's looking for a bargain. That was our bargain pitch. The fossils that are on the front of my fireplace enchant me every time I look at them. You know, Terry, they're <laughs> the evidence of life so many years ago. They're skeletal remains from ancient marine life. You do get chills when you try to... Think about what is 450 million years. I mean, we try to get our heads around what a thousand years ago was. I mean, this is almost uh, too hard for us to fathom. It's all about that sense of discovery and exploration. I'm always late to the restaurant with my friends because I'm walking around the building finding the fossils. I get on my hands and knees uh, touching fossils at the end of a performance at the art gallery just to tell friends the story. And, you know, you can go up to a house and see that little strip of, of stone between the front door and the return, and there's 18 fossils, you go to a big building and only find two. Or you can find the nicest fossil around the back at the loading dock, you know, of a warehouse. You never know what it's going to be. It's really random. And so when people say, can we guarantee you fossils? I say, I can guarantee you fossils. I can't say how many. I can't say how big. I said, but they're going to be there. Uh, we just finished the house and it was wonderful. He's the, one of the owners of Alibaba. Uh, and uh, they've done very well for themselves. One of the owners of Alibaba? You mean like yes. in China? Yes. Four Chinese fellows who got together saying, yeah, Amazon, eBay, yeah, we can do that. And, you know, the owner's the richest man in China. I think he's worth $28 billion, Jack Ma. So his chief financial officer built a house in Saskatoon, lovely man. He came to Winnipeg, and he had a tour of our quarry, and we took him to the Museum of Human Rights. And he looks at me, and he says, you know, Jeffrey, I would like, a wall of fossils beside our front door. Can we have that? I said, Michael, I said, you know, I can't guarantee how many I'm going to get to you, but you'll have fossils. We'll, we'll, we'll put them aside. We'll get you some fossils on that wall. No problem. He says, well, I'd appreciate that. I think he ended up having the Museum of Human Rights himself. His landscape package is probably more extravagant than my entire home. He fell in love with the story. He has four young kids. It's in Saskatoon. He fell in love with the university there in the end of community. And he wants his kids to go to school there. He wanted his kids to be aware of this very important part of Canadian history. And he ended up using a lot of stone in that job, but it really were the fossils. You have people like uh, Alibaba's guy. They feed off that. They sense it. It means something to them. It really, it matters. It's something that matters. What are those creatures that we see in the fossils? I know their names only because I've had to give tours to school children at the age of 10. Uh, it's a program that we have for the Public School Finance Board where we give tours to kids. Uh, so I had to not embarrass myself and learn some names. There's cephalopods and gastropods and nautilids and brachiotids and receptaculotids. And, it, you know, it's anything from algae to shrimps to chain corals or, you know, the ones that are in a circle. My favorite are cephalopods. Those are the ones that look like the, for the backbone. Last year, I did an episode with a really interesting architect furniture designer named Tom Fougere. And oh, he's, a friend of ours. 
Oh, you know him then? We love Tom. We, we do work with Tom. He graduated with one of our architectural reps. He is uh, just a wonderful sense of exploration. He loves our stone. When he was doing uh, his Tindlestone table, Tindlestone uh, planters, we love working with him. It's definitely suitable for things like tables from a durability standpoint. I think he appreciates that. There's some guys that have called us say it's a love or hate relationship. Some architects from the States have called us uh, or, or abroad because they're not as familiar with it. And they'll say, you know what? You guys have an absolutely beautiful stone. If only you could take out those, uh, those dragon stripes. Jeffrey Dalvich, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us on Prairie Design Lab today. You have been just an absolute font of wisdom and knowledge and depth. Oh, Terry, thank you. You know what? I enjoy it. I, uh, it means a lot to me, and so it's not hard to tell. I'm so honored that you agreed to be part of this and to tell this incredibly rich story. Take care. Okay, see you. Bye. Thanks, Terry. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Dolovich is the longtime vice president of sales and marketing at Gillis Quarries Limited of Garson, Manitoba. He spoke to us from their Winnipeg office. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast all about architecture and innovative design, and today, unique building stone from a prairie perspective. Our podcast is created by the students, faculty, and graduates of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg and by generous collaborators around the world. You can find us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to us on UMFM Radio in Winnipeg at 101.5 FM, Wednesday mornings at 11.30 a.m. Special thanks today to Brandy O'Reilly, who's the Communications and Special Projects Coordinator with the Faculty of Architecture, to Jason Chan, an instructor in the Faculty of Architecture, and to Jason Shields, an Assistant Professor of Interior Design who also composed our musical themes. I'm Terry McLeod. See you next week.